Well, good morning, everybody. There's uh, a few things we want to do announcements and we'll get into our study. Um, first off, just as you, I don't know if you got a handout yet or not, but if you do, so next Sunday uh, on the 30th, that's the fifth Sunday, so we will not have class in here today. That day, we will have um, an, a combined 9 o'clock session in the, in the sanctuary. Um, so that'll be a special service. And uh, we're going to hear, I think, uh, um, Lance is going to present the financial status of the church. And, you know, it used to be done on Sunday nights, but I thought this would be a good opportunity to do it there uh, this week, this coming weekend. And uh, so we'll meet in sanctuary until we will not have a Bible fellowship. Um, and then they, uh, two things are happening on the weekend of the 19th. Um, the uh, real life class is scheduled to clean that that weekend, so just be aware of that. Um, I'll send out an email to make sure that everybody knows and uh, try to coordinate a, a time where everybody can join in or at least take a piece of the of the puzzle and do a part of it themselves. There's also a disciplers luncheon. This is something that Brian is really. Um, Desiring that anybody that's an approved discipler, uh, which you know if you're an approved discipler because you've been told you are, or you're discipling or have discipled, that makes you an approved discipler. It's basically a, it's a luncheon. It starts about noon. It's on the 19th, Saturday, and it'll go until about 4 o'clock. We do have a guest speaker coming in that's going to, uh, it's a pastor from a church. I think he's in Pennsylvania, if I remember right. I don't remember. His, um, and I lost his name in my head. But anyway, it doesn't matter. Come and find out who it is. And uh, so that's the 19th. There'll be lunch, and there'll be a couple of sessions, teaching, training sessions. You remember who the guy is? I uh, Gary Haskell. Yeah. That's says Gary Haskell, pastor. Uh, so he'll be speaking. So that's the, so you, you, if it would help if everybody, if you're going to be there, register online on the church's website just to um, let people know you're coming. Uh, if, you, if you're not a discipler, an approved discipler, um, it's not like it's an exclusive club. I, I would think that Brian would receive anybody that wants, if you want to begin to make the progress or make the forward motion to become an approved discipler, this would be good for you to be there as well. So I would just encourage you to sign up for that as well. Uh, and then um, on, and so that's, those are in February. So let me back up to uh, January. January 29th, which is next coming Saturday, is the uh, women's retreat that's here at the church. It's an all-day. I don't know exactly what time it starts. Um, I think, but the details are online, and, and I think they would like you to sign up so they can get a head count for meals and things like that. Um, and uh, so please uh, sign up for that for the ladies. And then the marriage retreat, we are back on for doing a marriage retreat. We weren't going to do one. This year, uh, but uh, something changed. I'm not exactly sure what, but it, it made a, made an opportunity for us to have a marriage conference, marriage retreat. So that is in March, March 18th, Friday night, March 7th, the 19th, all day Saturday. Uh, it'll be held at a. We've done this before at the Hyatt um, Hotel in Lenexa. I don't know. We've been there in the past. It's a nice hotel, and. Um, so that's the 18th, 19th. I don't have any details on the cost yet, uh, but I think it's 
overnight for a couple, which includes the room, is about $180. That may change. I don't know up or down, so I don't want to say for sure. But just kind of plan for that. And um, so those are going on. So we asked a couple of names that continue to mention uh, Gwen and Betty Arney uh, for prayer. Um, Betty is, uh, I think you guys were just talking about her. Uh, she's doing a little bit better, but her knees are still sore and she's just got some mo mobility issues, which make complicates taking care of Gwen. Uh, Gwen's uh, cancer is still uh, giving, uh, he's still dealing with that, he's still being treated. Uh, he's got um, uh, some pain in his back, again, in his lower legs. Uh, they thought the pain had gone away from the surgery on, the, on his spine that they did, but it's apparently creeping back in. Um, so just be in prayer for both of them and their whole family. And uh, remember Sharon and Bob Vulcan. Uh, in prayer, and Bud Crust, and then Bob Klein, Bob's not with us today, he probably won't be back for a long time. Uh, he went into the VA hospital about a week ago with COVID, but he has had some medical issues for a while now, and um, and while he was there, they were able to do some testing, and he has prostate cancer, and um, let me read that text real quick. So this is from him this morning. One of the 12 sites they tested shows aggressive cancer. You need to have an abdominal cast scan and a bone scan to determine if it is spreading. And so um, that's a lot going on with him. Uh, so just be in prayer. I know we trust in the Lord right now uh, as, as all of our people on our prayer list. But just be in prayer for him as he's got, uh, he's got a lot to, to go on. Um, his, other, his other health complications will just make his treatment for, for cancer that much more complicated. So just keep him in mind. Um, I don't have anybody else as far as in our class, and I don't have anybody um, that uh, from the church uh, prayer list, but uh, uh, we've got a lot to pray for all the time anyway. And so that's that. So let's turn over to Psalm chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. We'll read that passage. We'll pray. We'll share, share in our prayer time, and, um, and then we'll get into our lesson. Psalm chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. <clears throat> David writes, Lord, how are they increased that trouble me? Many are they that rise up against me. Many there be which say my soul, there, say of my soul, there is no help from him in God, Selah. But thou, O Lord, art a shield for me, my glory and the lifter up of mine head. I cried unto the Lord with my voice, and he heard me out of my holy out of his holy hill, Selah. I laid me down and slept, I awaked, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousand of people that have set themselves against me round about. Arise, O Lord, save me, my, save me, O my God, for thou hast smitten all mine enemies upon the cheekbone. Thou hast broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongeth to the Lord. Thy, thy blessing is upon thy people. Selah. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, and thank you for this passage of scripture which reminds us, Lord, that you are our keeper, our safety, our protection. Uh, you um, 
you give us a reason not to be afraid of the things that uh, um, we face many times in our lives. When, Lord, we look at the passage at the end, that, that salvation belonged to you, but you share that salvation with us through your Son, Jesus Christ. I do pray, Father, that we would always be able to communicate that uh, to others, that they might be able to be saved and receive the blessing uh, that you want to bestow on them. And we just ask, Father, for protection on Bob Klein uh, and the scheduling of his CAT scan and all of the details that uh, go forward for his treatment. Pray for Gwen and Betty, Lord, that Betty would be uh, healing up in her legs and her knee and everything that's keeping her uh, as mobile as she wants to be. And I pray for, for Gwen. Um, just, uh, Lord, I love Gwen so much, and I just care for him. And I do pray, Father, and I know you love him more than I do. But I pray, Father, for Gwen. I pray, Lord, that you would heal his body, that you would remove the pain from his back and his legs, that you would give him comfort, that he might be able to get full night's sleep and restful sleep, and that he would be helped, that he would have peaceful sleep as well. And Lord, we just want to pray for all the activities that we have going on in our church. We pray for uh, the message this morning from Pastor Brian. And, and Lord, um, we just cry unto you, as verse 4 says, we cry unto you, with our voice and Lord we know that you hear us even though you're in, 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 in your holy hill and we thank you for that in Jesus name blessing is upon us, even though it, it can't be seen physically in us. We've been adopted, but someday we will be um, redeemed and, and resurrected. And I do pray for brothers and sisters who are sick, who are dealing with so many ailments. And I pray for Randy, Lord, that you would just continue to strengthen him and work through his body. And um, Father, uh, we know that what you're doing in us uh, is, is a work of faith and it can't be seen, but it'll be glorious when it's mm -hmm. finally revealed. And Lord, we, we praise you for that. We hope, we hope for that. We look for that. And we just thank you that, that you are true, you're righteous, you're gracious. Pray that you would just um, work through Randy today with your word uh, throughout our church. Father, as we conclude, conclude in prayer, we're just thankful, Lord, to know, we're, we're, uh, we're humbled to know that you care enough for us to protect us, as this passage has uh, described, Lord, you are our shield, um, and we're thankful for that, Lord, you lift up you lift up our head, and, um, and when we cry unto you, Lord, you hear us, and we're thankful for that as well. We ask now, Lord, that you would just uh, speak to our hearts this morning in, in this, uh, and we continue our study in 
In 2 Corinthians, we ask for your blessing on the day, Lord. And uh, we just pray, Father, for all the things that are going on in, in the different classrooms in the church today, all morning, both the 9 o'clock service and the, and the main service, Lord, that you would uh, be glorified in every class. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> okay. So um, we're in study on 2 Corinthians. Uh, we're in ch chapter 12. And um, I know last week we were in chapter 12 and we, we had a lot, we covered a lot of, uh, <coughs> a lot of doctrinal uh, concepts last week. And, um, but what I want to do today is I want to kind of, I'm actually going to go back to starting in verse 1 um, and tie some things together that's in the remaining part of the chapter. Uh, I, would, I titled this, this as, Who Deserved Glory? And uh, if, you, if you look at the, the way the chapter is laid out, you'll see that Paul is actually responding to that very challenge. Uh, who deserves glory, Paul? Uh, and the accusation by many is that it is Paul thinks that he's the one that deserves glory. So Paul's relationship with the church, as you, as you recall, for, you know, we've been in 2 Corinthians now for um, probably 26 weeks. 20, I mean, uh, so anyway, that's a long time. But uh, just to keep reminding you that this is a study because Paul wrote this letter because the church has, his relationship with the church has deteriorated. And it's, and, it's, and it's fallen apart because these Judaizers and false teachers had turned the ear of the, and the heart of the church of Corinth at, against Paul. And I referenced last week a passage in Acts chapter 17, verse 13 and 14, that said, When the Jews of Thessalonica had knowledge that the word of God was preached to Paul at Berea, they came thither also. Now, the Jews of Thessalonica, they're not Christians, or they would have been identified as brethren. This, these are Jews that are chasing after Paul to dis, try to disrupt all, any, any and all work that Paul is accomplishing for the grace of God, for the glory of God. Uh, and so it says in, in verse 13 that they, uh, when they heard that God, that, that God was preached, uh, Paul, isn't that crazy? They, God was preached, and so that frustrated them. Uh, that's the typical situation of the world, not necessarily God, but Jesus Christ is preached. And the world hates Jesus Christ. I remember, I'll never forget the story that uh, Bob Weston, he's, he's already passed away and gone on to be with the Lord, the missionary that we worked with a lot of times in, in, uh, in Jamaica. And he told his, his life story. He described how when he was a taxi driver, uh, before he went to the field, when he was a taxi driver in New York City, and he would, he would always say, God loves you. And people say, yeah, 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 and walk. And then when he started saying, Jesus loves you, people got frustrated at him and would basically, you know, attack him back verbally a couple times, physically. Uh, but that's just the way the world is. They don't want to hear God preach or Jesus Christ preach. Verse 14 says, Then immediately the brethren sent away Paul to go as... Let me back up. Uh, uh, so they preached of Paul at Berea. Then came thither also, they came thither to Berea, and stirred up the people. And that's the problem with what's happening in the Corinth, was they stirred up the people, and then immediately Paul, the brethren sent Paul away. But Paul didn't get sent away. He was already away from this church. He's dealing with this remotely right now. The church had been turned away from grace and mercy and toward the Old Testament law. Now, Paul, we looked at that over, over the last several weeks, that Paul was teaching on grace and mercy to the church, and this chapter is really a chapter about glory. 
Now, we don't know all that they said, what, they, what these guys told the church. We don't know how, what they said specifically in attacking Paul's character, his message, his wisdom. And they, but they did refer to him as a fool. And I find that interesting uh, that usually when somebody is attacking another person, if they don't have anything solid to say, they'll attack your character. That's, that's, a, that's a typical ploy. Um, you see it played out every day on the evening news where somebody has a problem with some issue, but the only thing they can say is, you're a fool, you're an idiot, you're whatever. You know, they will attack the character of the person instead of, instead of at least attacking the issue. Uh, and if they did that, at least they'd be more, more honest. Anyway, the point is, we don't know what they said, but we do know they attacked his character. And when we go back to Deuteronomy, we're not have to turn there, but I mentioned last week, we were, in Deuteronomy 31 is instruction on how to identify a true prophet. And uh, in verse 13, verse 5, it specifically says that these people, these prophets, if they're leading you away from the Lord your God, they are not good prophets. If they're leading you away from the Lord your God. Um, okay, so anyway, back to verse 1. So listen, I, I want to go back into verses 1 to 6, or 1 to 5 especially, because I want to I want to pull out from this, and then I want to tie it all together to the rest of the chapter. And we will try to get through the whole chapter today. But in verse one, notice that Paul said, "It is not expedient for me to for it is not expedient for me doubtless to glory. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord." So the point Paul responds to one of the accusations apparently was that Paul uh, was taking false or undeserved glory for himself. Um, and Paul is going to take the time now through this chapter to show the show the show these people and the church who's the rightful uh, recipient of glory and why, and how we should glorify God. He gives us four things actually in this chapter on specifically the things, the kind of things. I mean, you can have a list longer than four, but he gives us four things, four four uh, key things to focus on in our life that we should glorify God for these four things. So starting back in chapter 10, we don't have to turn back there, but Paul began to directly defend his authority. I mean, they, were, they attacked his authority back in chapter 10 that he's not really an apostle, so he dealt with it in chapter 10. Then in chapter 11, he addressed their attacks on his leadership. He used his own word. Remember, he said, let me speak as a fool. Well, that has actually continued into, verse, into chapter 12, the whole issue of being a fool. Because now in chapter 12, he gives more examples of his authority, of his position as an apostle, and the true pastor of the church of Corinth. In fact, the entire chap contents of chapter 12 is just a series of examples that show who is truly worthy of receiving all glory at all, any glory at all. So we're going to see four reasons uh, uh, that it is not us, but it is God who deserves glory. We never deserve glory. We shouldn't, we should never. So um, Paul says here in verse 1, he is not worthy of glory. And then he gives us an example of who is worthy of glory. And so he gave us that example, remember the vision that, that he saw. So through the, throughout the chapter, there's a pattern that keeps repeating itself over and over again um, as he points out that he could justify the taking of glory if he wanted to, but he has no intention of taking it. So that's, an, that's a key point. He's actually saying, hey, look, I could take this glory, but I don't want it. And so I want to point out a couple of things. Verse 1, he says, uh, you know, that it's, it's not expedient for me to glory. And look at verse uh, 6, 5 and 6. Verse 5 says, For though I would desire to glory, I shall not be a fool, for I will say the truth and now and, and 
but now I forbear. And then, uh, let's see, that verse 5, I didn't read that one. Of such a one will I glory, yet of myself I will not glory, but in my infirmities. For though I would desire to glory, I shall not be a fool. So in verses 5 and 6, so verse 1, he says, I'm not taking glory. Verse 5 and 6, I'm not taking glory. And then go down to verse uh, uh, 11. He says, I am become a fool in glory. You have compelled me, for I ought to have been commended of you, for in nothing am I put behind the chiefest of the apostles, though I, I will, though I be nothing. Paul again. So there's basically what's happening here. Paul says, I'm not taking glory. Here's a reason to glorify God. I'm not taking glory. Here's a reason to glorify God. I'm not taking glory. Here's a reason to glorify God. There's this pattern. And I didn't actually see it until I was doing just kind of like, how do I, how many times is a word glory or glorified or some, some, uh, type, some word format of the word glory? And it's really interesting. You see them in chapter 12. It's just boom, 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 boom. And then right after, after each expression of his, I'm not taking glory, he gives a reason why we should glorify God. So that's the kind of thing that I've, that I've noticed after. So let's go back. Uh, to, let me just turn over to Psalm chapter 22, verse 23. So if we're going to do a study on the word glory and what it means to glorify. Uh, we're going to start with the first time that the word glorify is found in the Bible. And it's found in, in Psalm chapter 22. I think everybody's familiar with Psalm 22. It's a prophetic psalm of the Lord Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. Um, let me get to Psalms. Okay, here we go. Psalm 22, in verse 1, it's not the point right now, but verse 1 says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me? From the words of my roaring. That's, that's what Christ said about he hung on the cross just before he actually died. But in verse 23... <laughs> We see the first time the word glorify or glory or something is used. In verse 23 it says, Yet fear the yet ye that fear the Lord, praise him. All ye the seed of Jacob, glorify him and fear him, all ye seed of Israel. So the, the, the psalmist is giving a direct statement, instruction really. Uh, ye that fear the Lord, glorify him. Whatever category you fall into, we should be glorifying him. So the word means, the word glory or glorify means to render honor to that who, or to who deserves such honor. Render honor. That's what to glorify means is to render honor. So think, Paul is saying, I don't want the honor of the work that I'm doing. I don't want to be honored for my ministry. I want God to be honored for my ministry. That's glory. It's always points Glory always points to who or what rightfully is worthy of praise and honor. So that's, I think your first blank is the word praise. So it, it glorify or glory points to who or what rightfully is worthy of praise. Glory is a true apprehension. That word apprehension, uh, that's one of those words, you know, it's a snatching, it's a grabbing, it's a holding on to. Um, in fact, it's, it's defined as grasping or acknowledging the reality of who God is. So Paul, so glory is the true apprehension, the true acknowledging of the reality of who God is. That would be a way of thinking about glory as well. The glory of God refers also uh, to his unchanging essence. Giving glory to God 
is ascribing to him his full recognition of all that God is, does, promises, and etc. So when you glorify God, let me kind of rephrase that a little bit. When you glorify God, what that is doing is you are acknowledging his unchanging essence of who God is, and you're giving God the glory. Basically what you're doing is you're ascribing, you're, you're, you're testifying, you're stating, you're describing uh, God in his full recognition of all that he is. So that's why Paul doesn't want to take glory away from God, because he's not God. Paul is not God. He doesn't want to be identified in that way at all. The glory of God is what he essentially is. And to glorify God is to give to him that which he, he is, such as honor and praise and worship. That, that would be some defining terms for, God, for, for the word glorify or glory. And see, now think about that. Now, do you want to claim all of that for yourself? Paul said, I don't. And Paul's, Paul is actually pointing to these Judaizers, these false teachers, and saying, why do they want to claim glory? That's the, by, you know, this, by, I don't know whether there's a term for this kind of argument, but he's using uh, basically a negative. I don't want this, they want this, and they shouldn't, they shouldn't want it because the rightful person is God. And that's the whole purpose of this chapter. All of, all of chapter 12 is about this. So Paul tells the church that he's not worthy of glory, nor does he even seek out or even desire anything like glory for his ministry, for his work, for his teaching, for his leadership, anything. He prefers that God get it. Um, you know, um, God should always get the glory, um, whether it's uh, him himself, um, whether it's in Scripture, as anything. In Psalm chapter 29, Paul said this about, or he didn't say it, he didn't write Psalm 29, but he, I can see his attitude found in, in Psalm 29 verse 2, where it says, Give unto the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in beauty of holiness. In the, in the beauty of holiness. Give the Lord the glory due his name. That's, that's Paul's attitude in this chapter. Why would I want it when I'm supposed to be giving it to God? So if we're going to glory in anything, it must be in what God has done. That's, that's what we're glorifying. What has God done? Well, God created a universe, number one. God offered a way of salvation and, and, and an escape from this, this, the, the bondage of sin, sinfulness. That's, number, that's another thing. Uh, God has, has uh, healed many things. God has taken care of many things. God given us the breath of life. God given us eternal life. I mean, all of those, you can just make that list. And that list will never end, actually, when you start glorifying God. And if your prayers include a list of glorifying God, you could, you could go for a long time. Because there's absolutely nothing that, you, that God doesn't deserve glory for. So Paul's position on who deserves glory is actually found in Psalm chapter 145, verses 3 to 7. And uh, I, I kind of, let's go back here. Psalm 145, we'll just read this a little bit. Psalm 145, verse 3 through 7. Okay, starting in verse 3. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and, great, and His greatness is unsearchable. 
One generation shall praise thy works to another. Now, listen to these, these verses and imagine yourself giving praise to God. I'll start over again. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise the works to another and shall declare thy mighty acts. I will speak of the glorious honor of thy majesty and of thy wondrous works. And men shall speak of the might of thy terrible acts, and I will declare thy greatness. They shall abundantly utter the memory of thy great goodness, and shall sing of thy righteousness. And you could probably go on all the way down through that passage, but you see, you see the intent of what glory, giving glory actually looks like, and the fact that this is what we should be doing as well. We shouldn't be seeking out our glory ever. We should be seeking glory, uh, God, seeking that God get the glory about whatever it is that we've done. So the word glory specifically means that which you boast of. So the right subject of our glory is always God, because that's who we, that's who we should boast about. We should boast about our God. Uh, his God, His Word, His gift, His grace, His mercy, and so on. So Paul, nor any other Christian, should be the recipient of glory, nor should we be interested in being glorified. And we should include prideful praise as well. We shouldn't seek praise of other men or women. We, we shouldn't seek praise. I know it's easy to praise other people. Wow, that was great, that's awesome. And it's kind of a piece of praise. You know, but it's, you know, turn it. Uh, yeah, God, God really worked through me today. That was awesome how God did that. That's that's deflecting that praise that is directed at you or me, directing it, redirecting it up to God because that's where it belongs. I don't want that praise. I'm just doing what God told me to do. You're doing what God told you to do. So direct his, your that whatever praise up to God. Um. Paul gives us some reasons in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians uh, why we should, what we should glory in. First, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 31 says that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, which we just looked at a few weeks ago, verses 17 and 18, but he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. For not, for not he that commendeth himself is approved, but whom the Lord commendeth. Your, your approval, by the way, doesn't come from you, doesn't come from anybody else. It comes from God. God will approve what you're doing if you're doing it according to God's will and God's direction. So Paul chooses to give glory, God the glory alone because all that God has done for him in his life, he rightfully deserves it. So through most of this chapter, Paul <coughs> takes on his accusers again, and he starts by saying that he seeks no glory, that's verse 1, but if I, he said, but if I did, let me, if I did take the glory, let me give you several reasons why I could not take the glory for myself. So keep this in mind as we, as, uh, and keep in mind this is one of the attacks against him as he sought the undeserved glory, about him taking glory to belong to God. So, um, so that's just, that's the point of, of verse one. But just as a reminder, we won't spend a lot of time in here. In, in verses two to five, God communicated with Paul through visions and, and uh, uh, revelations. We'll go back there and just read that passage real quick. Verse, uh, verse 1, the second part of verse 1, I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I knew a man in Christ about 14 years ago. Whether in the body I cannot tell or whether out of the body I cannot tell, God knoweth. 
such an one caught up into the third heaven. And I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell. God knoweth how that he was caught up into paradise and heard an unspeakable word, which is not lawful for, another, for a man to utter. Of such an one will I glory, yet of myself I will not glory, but in mine infirmities. Okay, so this vision, just real quickly, I'm just gonna I'm gonna run through this. I got a lot of notes here, but I'm not gonna dwell on them a lot. Paul speaks of visions and revelations given to him of God. We talked about what a vision was, the difference between a vision and a, and a dream. And a vision usually is uh, causes a scene to appear and pass before the mind that has some sort of future um, expectation or future prophetic um, uh, direction. And uh, and then we talked about he talked about these revelations. So these revelations were the result of the visions. When God, Paul learned another truth of the, of the nature and the power of God, he had a revelation. He gives us a truth through his vision that nobody could duplicate, not even these false apostles. And so he shares his vision. And that vision, and real quickly, um, remember he, he, uh, he said, above 14 years ago a man was in the body, I cannot tell, or out of the body, I cannot tell, and so on. And so basically Paul had a vision. And that vision was... The vision of heaven. He saw the third heaven. He saw, as I said last time, he saw that heaven was a place. Heaven is a real place. It's not a figment of anybody's imagination. It is a place. It is, is if we were to say it's a place in the universe, if we could put a dot on them, you know, pin, a, pin it on the map, we could. It's at the top of the universe. The, the, the throne of God, the third heaven, is at the top of the universe. And uh, without getting into a lot of discussion, we, I did read a verse this morning already that I talked about the, the mountain of God. And that mountain, is that's the shape of the universe. Uh, and because God spoke it and out, out it went into a cone shape, like a mountain. And the, the, the universe itself, or the throne, the third heaven, the third heaven, the throne of God is at the top of all of that. So anyway... Uh, he had that vision. He had it 14 years ago, which we found we read about in Acts chapter 14, uh, about how he was he was stoned and he died, and God brought him back to life. But he had a vision. He actually went to heaven at that time. This visual, this vision of what I would refer to as a spiritual validation of Paul's ministry, and it points to the proper recipient of glory for the prophetic destination of all believers. So that's why this is what Paul. First, he says, I don't want to take any glory. Let me give you a glory, something to glorify, and that is where God is located and that that is going to be your future home. That's what we can glorify God in. We know where God is located. We don't have to say, where's God? Some people like to attack uh, the truth of Christianity and say, well, where is God? Show me God. Well, if you could look straight up heaven, just past the North Star, far as you can see, you still can't see heaven, but that's where God is located. God is in the third heaven. I know we put a Hubble telescope up there 20 years ago, and we think we can see that to the end of the universe. And now they're going to be building a new new telescope to put out there that's supposed to be more powerful than the Hubble. We may see uh, that far. Is there an end to the universe? I think that there is. I don't know if I would say an end. Let's call it a boundary. Okay. Because... Um, the, when God created, He uh, He spoke the world into spoke the universe into existence. Everything became, and so it's been spreading out. And uh, I think in Isaiah nine six says the, the in effect. Let me just go there so I don't mess up that verse. <coughs> That's a good question. 
um, because you know we want to understand you know science is nothing more than the discovery of what God's already done. That's why they use the word discover. Literally, the word discover means to discover, um, remove the covering, right? So when you see what's the truth, so in Isaiah chapter nine. Verse 6. Let's start with verse 6. We'll read down through verse 7. Uh, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon the the kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from, from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Um, and I got some other verses that I won't take the time to flip over to, but so that, so it, it, it continues to expand and grow. And what's one of the so there's a, a term, scientific astronomical term called redshift. Basically, when they look through a telescope, they see the differences of colors. They, they can, and the red is it's like when you look at a rainbow. You know, I don't know where all the colors of the rainbow are, but each each band of color has a different uh, wavelength, and uh, and so you, you and your eyes are able to pick up certain colors. And when you blend them all together, it looks like it's just one color white. Um, but um, uh, where was I going with that now? <laughs> Bands of colors within that hmm? redshift. Well, the redshift. Thank you. So red. So I don't remember this, the astronomer that determined this, but it was about in the 1950s, uh, when he started noticing that the colors of, of galaxies and, and objects in space, they had a, the red color as over time shifted in red. It's a little bit different, different red, a little bit deeper, a little bit darker or lighter, I don't know which direction it went. But that basically means that that object is moving away from the telescope that was seeing it. So the universe is expanding and growing. And then there's one more passage real quick. I just, and I, it's also in Isaiah, but I don't remember the passage number, the verse number. But it says that God holds the universe in the palm of his hand. He holds all of creation in the palm of his hand. So there's a, there's a boundary, a border. Um, let's look up the palm of his hand. And, it's all kind of thrilling. Yeah, it is. It really is. Uh, so this, uh, this summer... I don't remember when we're going to start, but we're going to, uh, me and Jeremy, we're going to tag team a, a, a Wednesday night Bible study on what we call uh, apologetics, which is a, it's not an apology, it's a, it's a defense of the, the, the Bible and God and so on, and, and we're offering why we believe the evidence proves this and proves that, and, and confirms that there is a God. I think it's his hand, actually, not the palm of his hand, but his hand. I can't look up my phone. Look up the word span. S P A N. 
One of Isaiah. Kings 40, verse 12 is the one that I'm actually thinking about. Okay. It says, Who hath measured the waters of, in the hollow of his hand, and meted out heaven with a span, and comprehended the dust of the earth? The word span means the size of his hand. That's basically the measurement from the tip of your thumb to the tip of your index finger. That's the span. Mm -hmm. And so it says that he meted out heaven with the span of his hand, and comprehended the, de the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains and scales, and the hills in a balance. So this is how big the universe and powerful God is. He's holding the whole universe in his hand. That's how I describe that verse. So it does have a boundary. It's not never ending. It does, I mean, even, even the false believing scientists will tell you that there's a boundary on the universe, and even though it's constantly expanding and growing. Um, so you know, it's an interesting thing. Okay, so... Um, can I get back on track here where we're at? I think. Okay, so verses one to six, or one to five, basically, Paul says, "I don't want to, I don't want to take glory." So this is glory for God for our destination. That would be a glory, glory for God's future in our life. Uh, then verses six to ten. Let's go back to Second Corinthians, verses six to ten, and we'll read them. <coughs> Paul says, "For though I would desire." To glory, I shall not be a fool, for I will say the truth, but not. But now I forbear, lest any man should think of me above that which he seeth me to be, or that he heareth of me, unless I should be exhausted above measure. And this is an interesting, this this passage here, because we just talked about a lot. Unless I be exalted above measure, through the abundance of the revelation, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I sought the Lord thrice, that it might be depart, it might depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, than the, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I will take pleasure in infirmities, and reproaches, and necessities, and persecutions, and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Then am I strong. Now, I didn't break down all of that, and we aren't, we're not going to take, take time to dig into all of those. I'm just saying, so I would say that Paul is what now is talking about. Uh, let's be careful here. Let's, let's, let's realize that the danger of thinking too highly of ourselves will take God's glory away from him. So Paul gives this next example of how he doesn't deserve what glory he should, that uh, they think he's claiming, but he does want to glorify God. So verse 6, that's pretty straightforward. It's a plain verse that says, it's foolishness to take God's glory. And we don't, I mean, that's, that's, just, that's just straight up. It's foolishness to try to claim God's glory. Uh, so when God is moving and doing, for, for we can do nothing without God. And in verse 7, verse 7, notice that the expression, he says, because of everything that's happened, because, because there is a truth, and he, this kind of points back to the first few verses, but in verse 7, lest I should be exalted above a measure of the abundance of revelations, there was, and he said, there was given me um, an, a, a, um, I lost my place. 
a, a, a thorn. Okay, so in verse 7, he says, lest I should be exalted above measure. So Paul is trying to keep his pride in check. He's keeping his pride in check because with all that God has entrusted him to do, he could have easily thought more highly of himself than he should. And so he's saying, because this is how God keeps all of us in check. Paul kept his pride in check because with all that God was entrusted him to do, so we have all probability experienced or caused problems due to position because position breeds pride. Now let, me re, let me restate that again. Um, we've all probably experienced ourselves or caused problems due to our position because position breeds pride. So we have to be careful not to have pride. And Paul is focusing directly on that. Pride is the thinking that you are more important than other people. And it's also, it also breeds an inordinate level of self-esteem. Pride is one of the three pathways to sin. You guys remember what John said in John chapter 2, verse 16, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. That's one of the three pathways to sin. So Paul is warning the church also in Rome to be careful about how they should think of themselves. He said in Romans, Romans chapter 12, verse 3, I say through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according to as God has dealt with to every man the measure of faith. So I believe, as I look at this, I believe that Paul was concerned that the visions and the revelations that he had received that he spoke about in the first five verses would easily put him, at least in his mind, to be above all others. He had to be careful that... Well, I got to go to heaven, and I got to come back, and you didn't, so I'm better than you. Paul said, I can't let that happen. I can't go there. I say this, I, say, I think this, because what he says in verse 7, lest I should be exalted above measure. I think that's referencing back to verses 1 to 5. So Paul doesn't want to get a big prideful head, thinking that I get to see that. So, so not only that, so God also wants to make sure to keep him humble. So this, um, it appears that Paul... Um, feared that he could have exalted, he could have exalted above measure, uh, that he could be exalted above measure and in help uh, with this. Uh, so to help him keep, keep it straight, God gave him a thorn in the in the flesh to prevent him being exalted. So what is the thorn in the flesh? Anybody know? Nobody knows. Nobody knows. But there's some there's some ideas. Some claim it was his failing eyesight. Some claim that it was a sickness such as malaria that constantly plagued him. Uh, some think it was a form of infirmity, which Paul may have referenced uh, in the ninth, ninth verse of this chapter, but we don't really know. Um, it could have been a weakness that he had, muscle strength. Who knows? Nobody really knows, but God gave it to him. He believes that God gave it to him. Whatever it was, it was sharp, and it was a constant message from Satan under the, uh, uh, under the approval of God, I will say. God allowed Satan to buffet him, to keep him humble. So whatever it was, um, it was not a form of attack from Satan. Paul called it, literally, Paul refers to it as a gift from God. This buffeting is a gift from God. Notice that he says, I think it's in, uh, let's see, I'll make a note of where I, where this is. And let me see verse 7 again. 
Um, oh yeah, verse 7, right in the middle of verse 7, he says, I should be exalted above measure, though the abundance of the revelation there was given to me a thorn. Paul considered this a gift. It was something that was given to him. Not punishable gift, but a, a, a gift to maintain his humility in the situation that's going on. Um, so the thorn in the flesh, the best way that Paul um, dealt with that was he just acknowledged what it was. In verse 8, this is how he handled it. Verse 8, he says, For this thing I, sought, I besought the Lord thrice, that it should be depart from me. He sought the Lord for respite, you know, for uh, reference or from um, relief. He prayed three times. And God, notice that God, so a lot of times people will point to this and say, God said no. God didn't say no. God just gave him a different answer. He didn't give him a yes or no answer. He gave him a different answer. It was a more powerful answer, actually. The answer, the, um, the answer was not no. God's answer was that you have my sufficiency and you have my strength. You don't need anything else. That's, that's the power of, of this. It's an amazing thing when you look at it. He didn't say no. Paul said, would you take the th- I, I prayed three times that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, God speaking in verse 9, or he's quoting God, My grace is sufficient for, sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, Paul is now saying, Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities than the power of Christ, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities. I take pleasure in infirmities. That just blows my mind. Why? Because God has given every person uh, strength and grace. And those things help us get through. And it's interesting that he considered it a gift. And it's not a form of attack from Satan like, like many people think it is. God allowed it to happen. He just used Satan. Just like Job. God used Satan <coughs> to uh, address Job. Not because he didn't like Job, because he was using Job as a, as a testimonial of what God's... Uh, Job and Paul probably were the same in the sense that Job would never cur- cast, curse God. Paul's never going to curse God. And Paul says, I'm just going to take pleasure in the infirmity I have, because I know that it's a gift from God. That's a weird way to think about illnesses and sicknesses. and uh, The word buffeted literally means to be beaten with the fist. So he was buffeted, he was beaten, constantly being beat on in whatever state it was. So this is an incredible thing. So he, he sought the Lord for respite. He prayed many times. The answer was not no. The answer was you have my sufficient, my grace and you have my strength. And so the importance of both grace and strength is that we realize that having God is all we need. And he is all the strength that we need to endure the thorn, the, whatever that thorn is. The thorn was necessary that God's strength be made perfect in our weakness, and the thorn is necessary that we see God's grace as sufficient. That's a different way to look at this than most people teach it. They don't teach it as uh, God sometimes says no to your prayer. He didn't say no. He gave you a different answer. He, he just gave a different answer. He gave you a place to rest in the answer. To Paul's prayer was persistent, but not never-ending. But, but it did end, I'm sorry. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, be careful for nothing but in everything in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your request be known to God. Okay, so the point of all of this, the second thing here is, is glory that Paul did not want, glory to God for his moving in our life. 
So sometimes God moves in our life and we think it's miraculous and it's a wonderful thing and it's great. Sometimes God moves in our life and it's not so much pleasure. But we're going to take pride, or we're going to, we're going to, we're going to um, uh, take pleasure, he said, Paul says in verse 10. Okay, now in verse 11 to 18, Paul cared for the church. Now he's kind of shifting gears here a little bit because he's actually working his way towards the end of the letter, which we'll get into chapter 13 here in the next few weeks. But this is the third time that Paul proves that he is not seeking his own glory. And he tells the church, even though I am not looking for glory, it is how you should treat me. And that's an amazing thing. Verse 11, I am become a fool in glory. Ye have compelled me to be a fool. That's what he's saying. You're compelled me to be a fool in glory. For I ought to have been commended of you. For in nothing am I behind the very chiefest of apostles, though I be nothing. Truly the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in all patience and signs and wonders and mighty deeds. For what is it wherein ye were inferior to our to other churches, except that it be that I myself was not a burden to you? Forgive me this wrong. That's an amazing thing how he says those little throws out those little kind of tidbits there. But anyway, we'll go back here for a minute. So this third time he wants to prove that he that he doesn't want glory, but the the fact is the church ought to glorify ought to glorify Paul. The church had been convinced that Paul was no true apostle, so he had proved that in chapters 10 and 11. He also pointed out several truths about where glory belongs in in this chapter. So let me just give you a summary real quick. Uh, First, he he never sought glory of of any kind. First, he never sought glory of any kind. Second, he was actually worthy because God had given him the glimpse of the future and I should not, I, he says, I should not that the church was within earshot of this truth, but turned away. Third, uh, God will draw us all to him via some sort of thorn. And then lastly, where we're kind of at right now, is that God will draw us to him via some, uh, I'm sorry, I just read that. Lastly, our hum- humility is protection to not think that we deserve such glory that in fact belongs to God. So now he points out their failure. So he, now he's turning the corner on this, on this topic, and he's turning the corner and he says, your failure is that you're not commending me when by right of title he should have been received glory not from his making, not of his making, but of theirs. Basically, you know, Paul, that was awesome teaching. Thank you for that. Thank you for explaining that. That's, that's the kind of thing that they should have been saying, but they weren't. They were saying, Paul, you're just a bad teacher. Well, these guys say you're a bad teacher, so you're a bad teacher. See, so Paul is turning the corner on them. He points out their failure in not commending him, which by right of title he should have received glory, not of his making, but of others. So imagine how the false teachers would have responded if the church chased them out of, um, after, for speaking ill of the man who had invested so much in their material spiritual growth. Basically what I'm saying here is this thing. So these guys came in. They tried to falsify everything that Paul did, destroy his work, bring the church back to the Old Testament. What if everybody, in order to, in a commendable way, say, stop right there. You're talking about Paul, my pastor. You're talking about the man that taught me the Bible. You're going to tell me that he's wrong? Who do you think you are? Get out of this church. That's what they should have done. And Paul says, that's what you should have done, but you didn't do it. You just, you just let them tickle your ear, and you got your whole self all twisted up and knotted up, and now you want to go back to the Old Testament? And you want to blame me? You want to accuse me of trying to take glory? 
when you should have been glorifying and God and me are already against those guys to stop them from doing what they're doing. That's why he said in verse 13, For what it is then wherein you are inferior to other churches, except it be that I myself was not burdensome to you. Forgive me this wrong. Forgive me this wrong. This is interesting as Paul seeks forgiveness that he did not give them the opportunity to be equal to other churches. He apparently could have been a burden to the church, but he didn't, he didn't want to be a burden to the church. And then talking about their support of him. So I think this means he never pressed them to glorify him or even defend him. And then with verses 14 to 18, we're almost done. It's his intention to return to the church. He says, verse 14, Behold, the third time I am ready to come to you, and, and, and I will not be burdensome unto you, for I seek not yours, but you. That's an important statement. I seek not yours, but you. For the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. And I will very gladly spend and be spent for you, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. But, but, it, but be it so, I, I did not burden you. Nevertheless, being crafty, I, I caught you with guile. Did I make a gain of you by any of them who I sent unto you? And then he's our transitions talking about Titus. So let me just kind of wrap this up here. No matter how the church had treated Paul, he still intended to come a third time for very personal reasons. He cared about the church. He's not seeking what they had. Would have, that would have been their ability to show not show uh, show or show not or not show glory. So he's not seeking what they had. He was seeking them. That's, he's, he was he was desiring them. He wanted them, and the reason he cared is because of a parental desire to provide his children with all that they needed to be the best that they could be. It's interesting. Paul puts that in a parental uh, framework there. Uh, in verse 16, I think it's verse 16, yeah, 14, oh, sorry, yeah, I seek not yours, but you, for the children ought not to lay up the parents, but the parents unto, for the children. So the example that he gives then is as follows there, is, is Titus, because Titus treated, treated them the same way that he had been trying to treat them. That's what he speaks about in verse 18. And then to wrap up this, this lot of this chapter, in verses 19 to 21, Paul needs to clear up some misunderstandings. In this last section, Paul does a double take, explaining that he is not making an excuse for himself. Instead of that, that instead of that, he does this for the edifying of the church while, while giving glory to God. So the point is, Paul's desire was that the church be edified. Verse 19. Again, thank ye that we excuse ourselves unto you. We speak, therefore, we speak before God in Christ, but we do all things dearly, beloved, for your edifying. For I fear lest when I come I shall not find you as such as I would, and that I shall be found unto you such as ye would not, lest there be debates, envyings, wrath, strife, backbitings, whisperings, swellings, and tumults, and lest when I come again my God will humble me among you and that I shall be bewail many which have sinned already and have not repented of the cleanness of uncleanness of the fornication lasciviousness which they have committed. So Paul's desire was, 
was that the church be edified. And the word edified means to be built up. And Paul would not come to the lay out his excuses for why they should, should glorify him. And that's not why he's coming. He's not coming to prove that he deserved everything that they say he's taken. He's coming for them. <coughs> he's coming for them. When we go on a mission trip, we're not going there to glorify a missionary. We're, come, we're going for the people that they're ministering to, to help them minister to who they're, they're working for. Um, and so the word edify means to build up. And Paul will not come to lay out his excuses for why they should glorify him. Instead, he will come to be able to build them up further to be the church that, they, that he could present. Remember back in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, Paul said, I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband that I may present you as the chaste virgin to Christ. When he made that statement, and this passage right here, it's almost referring back to that statement. This is how I care about you. I just want you to be edified and built up to be that so you can be presented to God, to Christ, as, as, a, as the bride of Christ. So Paul knows that he's been, that he has been and will be humbled by God, but there, there's a needed clearing up of the sin that is contained in the church or contaminated in the church. And he's, he will not beat them. Instead, he will bewail them. I think it says there... Um, Lest when I come again, my God will humble me that, that I will that I shall bewail many which have sinned. He's not he he will bewail them, which basically means that he will grieve for their sin and grieve at their lack of repentance. It's interesting how he finishes the chapter um, speaking about the second half of verse twenty one and have not repented of the uncleanness and fornication and lasciviousness which they have committed. Paul, all the way back to 1 Corinthians, he's been trying to deal with their sin and their, their bad behavior. And he's still, he's like, you know, I've done everything I can do. I love you. I'm going to keep coming to you to edify you, to build you up, to strengthen you till I can present you. But you guys got to repent at some point in time. You've got to make a change. And so this last glory was a glory to God for his patience with us. We glorify. Paul was patient with this church. It's amazing. We've talked about how he... He wrote four letters to the church. Or, yeah, four letters to the church. He sent Titus. He sent Timothy. He went himself several times. He intended to come a third time. It's all. It's because he was patiently waiting for this church to get get their act together. It wasn't like he said, "I'm done." You know, you guys. I'm finished. I'm finished with this church. I'm leaving. I'm never coming back. Too many of us. That's what happens to us, right? Not as leaders, but at some point in time, we say, "I'm done with this church. I'm never coming back." And they leave and they depart and they don't go to another church. They just, I'm done with God. And it's a shame. But God says, I keep coming to you and keep coming to you and keep coming to you. Paul is my example. I keep coming to you. I keep coming to you. I keep coming to you to edify, to build you up, to prepare you, to, to, to make you uh, a, a chaste virgin, ready to be presented. You won't repent. You won't, you won't change. And Paul says, it's time to change. So we finished that chapter. We've got one chapter left in this book. It's been a good study so far. I hope you've enjoyed it. So let's pray now. We'll be dismissed a couple minutes over. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for this chapter. Thank you for everything that you, you taught us here, Lord, about the rightful glorification of who you are and the rightful unglorification of who we are. Uh, the lack of glorification, Lord. We don't need it. Sometimes we do need to be commended, but not in, not in a glorifying way, but in a defensible way, Lord, that sometimes... 
um, we need to stand up and say, yes, that is the correct doctrine that's being taught in this church. Uh, no, you cannot keep teaching that false stuff. Go away if you don't want if you don't want to know the truth or teach the truth. So, Father, I pray you continue to protect uh, this church and others like our, like ours who believe in your word and, and attempt to follow it as in all in all cases. And we just give you the honor and the praise and the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, whoever, let's see, Bob, good to see Bob, my mom, uh, Gwen and Betty were there. Hope everybody's still there. But anyway, God bless, love you guys.